We are back with another episode of Science Hash, and I am very excited about this episode. In the past few weeks, I have been reading a lot about medical history, and some of the historical facts are really surprising and weird. For example, in the time of the ancient Greeks, a doctor could earn a good reputation simply by being able to guess who would recover and who would die from an illness. That's True. They didn't need to know what their patients were suffering from, just whether or not they would get better. Actually, knowing how to diagnose a patient wasn't a major focus of medicine until centuries later, after the invention of the stethoscope, microscope, and thermometer. And this is pretty interesting, especially since diagnostics are a huge part of modern medicine. It's the root of figuring out the proper treatment plan and preventing serious illness. Yeah, and it's difficult sometimes because we have to figure out what's going on inside the body to make a decision, but we can't always go inside to look. And in today's episode, we talk with one of the pioneers in medical devices technology, Dr. Michael Simo, a professor and scientist at MIT and the Koch Institute, about a new medical device his team designed that helps to solve this problem. Simply, the device will let doctors take a peek inside the body at the liver and help diagnose early states of fatty liver disease. Hi, I'm Shen Ning. And I'm Mehdi Jurfi, and you are listening to a new episode of Science Rehashed. Discovery. Rehashing Science. And we are trying something new on our Twitter these days. Come share with us your thoughts, questions on the latest Science Rehashed episode and let us know what you think about them. Rehash the episode with us at Science Rehash, that's science, R-E-H-A-S-H-E-D, using the hashtag SR episode, that's S-R-E-H-E-D. P-I-S-O-D-E. See you there all. Thank you very much again, Dr. Simo, for joining us today. If you would like to take a few minutes and introduce yourself to our audience. Well, I'm Michael Sima. I am a professor at MIT. I've been here 34 years as a faculty member, and uh, I'm in the uh, engineering school. I'm associate dean of the engineering school, and uh, I'm a researcher here at the Koch Institute, which is a uh, center for cancer research. But I do work in all kinds of biomedical engineering, and I have a particular emphasis on single compartment drug delivery and and diagnostics. That's great. Can you tell us a little more about your background? Have you always been engineering? And what fields have you kind of dipped your toes in? Yeah, well, you know, over quite a few decades, I've been involved in a lot of different things. I started my career as a chemical engineer, PhD in chemical engineering from UC Berkeley. By accident, I got a job offer from MIT in the material science department. That's another story. Came here and fashioned myself into to be a material scientist. 
material scientist and engineer. So it's material science and engineering here at MIT. We call it course three. But I had never taken a biology class. So mostly my work when I started here was in the field of colloids and materials processing, very heavy engineering emphasis on. And I was one of the uh, early groups anywhere working on what's now called 3D printing. I got started consulting for these various companies, not knowing what really anything about drug development or biomedical engineering and and uh, basically taught myself uh, via work with these companies and it affected my research. So now all I do is biomedical engineering, but it took, you know, three decades for that to happen. And so now I teach a course in medical product development. It's hard to believe. Never taken a biology class. In fact, the first pharmaceutical company I started, my basic reaction was, well, how hard could that be? Because <laughs> I didn't know how hard it was. So uh, it's been a tremendous amount of fun. Thank you, Dr. Sima. I cannot wait to hear more about the exciting work you have been doing in the field of diagnostics. Stay with us to hear more. If you're enjoying the show and want to help us keep making the content we do make, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash join slash science rehashed to become a patron for just $3 a month or a VIP patron for $5 a month. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free science rehash water bottle. What's cooler than that? Maybe our episode? Let's get back to it. Dr. Simo has extensive experience in diagnostic technologies. He spoke with us about a new device that can be used to diagnose the progression of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD, N-A-F-L-D. Yeah, and I've heard that NAFLD is sometimes called the silent killer. That's because it's a very gradual disease with few symptoms, but sometimes it can cause damage that's similar to the effects of alcohol. It's so interesting because I think most people associate liver problems with heavy alcohol drinking. But with NAFLD, the damage can be caused by other factors like a high-fat diet. So we asked Dr. Seema about NAFLD and what can happen if it develops into a more serious problem called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH. It's like 30 or 40 percent of Americans have excess fat in their liver non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is very common. And fortunately, you don't die from it. Yeah, that's not going to be a, an important diagnostic. You're just going to tell them something they already know. But what about NASH, which is a subset of people with fatty liver disease that for one reason or another get inflammation. The subset get actually cirrhosis, you know, so fibrotic reaction to the inflammation. And that's irreversible. Fatty liver disease is reversible. You lose weight, it'll go back. But this subset, which is 10 to 20%, depending on who, how you count those, of these people get irreversible disease and can ultimately lead to liver failure. And no one knows how to find that subset. And 
With this in mind, over the course of 14 years, Dr. Sima and some of his creative students capitalized on the principles of nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR, to create a device to be used in diagnostics. Yes, and the device can detect physical characteristics of tissue in the body using iron oxide nanoparticles. Just wait until you hear about his inspiration for using NMR on the body. The change in these particles could be measured by a technology that's very similar to NMR. It is an NMR-based technology. And so when we founded P2 Biosystems, I did a lot of work on making small, you can think of them very small NMR machines. And so the robot would put a sample inside the small NMR machine. That's this very tiny test tube that would go in. So there was a lot of engineering to make that work. I did a lot of that. And so we were making those here at MIT. And uh, one day I decided to stick my finger in it and do a measurement. It's non-invasive. And so rather than measuring a test tube with these iron oxide particles, I had my finger in there. And then the student and I asked the question, what is it telling me? Long story short, we decided it was telling us was about the properties of water in my finger. Each compartment of my finger, intracellular space, extracellular space, the fat and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was getting information from each of those water molecules. And in fact, in theory, you could mathematically extract the property of water in each one of those compartments. So we weren't using it as an MRI. We were using it as an NMR machine, very closely related, but instead of imaging, it was being used to measure the bulk property of the finger. Okay, I'm gonna have to interject here and give a quick word to our listeners. This doesn't mean that you should go stick your fingers in machines to make your next big discovery, but sometimes a little curiosity goes a long way. Okay, let's keep listening to our talk with Dr. Sima. I can imagine that there were many steps along the way from that first discovery with the NMR machine in your finger. And I saw that a few years ago, you were on a study in dialysis patient that had to do with this property of water you were just telling us about. So can you tell us how that work connects to what we are talking about today in the liver? Where we use this instrument, in fact, the same instrument for the liver disease in dialysis patients. So we could do measurements before and after dialysis and prove to ourselves that we were actually measuring what we thought we were because in dialysis, they're removing fluid. So we had kind of the perfect situation. You have a patient before, you remove a liter of fluid and you have the patient after. That worked and we're still growing that. In fact, I'm hoping to start another clinical trial within the next six months in that patient population. But then I had two other students, the authors of this paper, Ashvin in particular, that said, hey, why don't we try and use this for measuring the other properties, also of water, but for a different disease instead of hypovolemia, which, you know, like in dialysis patients, they have too much water. Let's use it for characterizing the water in the liver. And, uh, and the fat in the liver, because we can identify the fat compartment. And I said the water in the extracellular and intracellular compartments of tissue. Ashwin said, let's look to see if we can do that. And, you know, I had to tell him, I said, that's going to be a tough one, right? Because 
you know, what we're looking for is inflammation. We're looking for a small amount of fibrotic reaction. How is this technology going to pick that up? So he said, well, we don't know unless we try. And so I gave it, to be honest with you, I gave it like a very small chance of success. I I think we, we would no question get the fat, but get the, you know, essentially the inflammation or the fibrotic reaction. I was very surprised to see that it actually worked. And I think that was, uh, you know, it's a great example of how maybe I knew too much, you know, <laughs> then Ashford said, it, it didn't know to, enough to question, you know, like, well, it should make a change. And here's why I think it could, we could be sensitive to it, but well, is it enough? I don't know. Let's try it. So he did and it worked. listeners, don't forget to tell us what you think of Science Rehashed by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be reading a new review every episode, so head over to Apple Podcasts now to tell us your thoughts. Today, we have a comment from Girl who says, such great in-depth conversations about the amazing discoveries and the amazing people behind them in the world of science. Love listening to all the great questions from the hosts and all the stories shared by the guests. Go to Apple Podcasts and your comment might be featured in our next episode. Now, back to our episode. That is quite a saga, Dr. Sima, and it really goes to show what an impact a student's idea can have on a project. Now, can you describe for the audience what the device actually looks like, how to apply it, how big is it? The working end of it is a box about six inches by four inches by four inches. That's the working part of it. It's basically an array of magnets, an array of rare earth magnets. And the top of it is a little coil and that you push up against the tissue. And then what happens is, is that it's not measuring the material at the surface, but some millimeters into the tissue is a volume that you're measuring. So that's the working end of it, but actually how it appears in the clinic, this is, you know, neodymium magnets, so they're pretty heavy. So this thing's heavy. You don't want people carrying it around. They could drop it on their foot or something like that. So we actually have it on a cart, a very small cart that's got a laptop in it and some other electronics to process the signals. And then you just wheel it up next to the bed and uh, push it up against uh, the patient and do the measurement. So there's a couple different advantages and please do name more if I'm missing them. One is that, you know, that's a big thing is it's portable, that this device, the sensor you've been able to demonstrate. So can you talk about, you know, this advantage and some of the other advantages over the current existing gold standard? The gold standard is a liver biopsy. So it's pretty invasive procedure. There have been demonstrations to do a similar thing with an MRI. And so there's some indication, nothing as extensive as what this here, but I believe that you could do exactly the same thing that we've done here with a MRI run in quantitative mode. Take your normal clinical scanner and run it in a quantitative way to be able to extract the same information. 
quite obviously, you know, an MRI is a very, very expensive thing to do. And particularly when you've got 30% of the American population that you'd have to screen with it, it was just basically not viable diagnostic tool for screening at that scale. What this paper is about is the idea that you could take, you know, something, you know, the instrument that we had here was built for less than $2,000. And I can tell you, we've actually run it in the clinic. So the same instrument was actually run in the uh, dialysis suite at MGH for over a two-year period. So it was actually, you know, a clinical instrument that could be run in there, safely run in the clinic with patients. You know, this is, this is a clinically viable device that could be used in a clinical setting. So before something like this goes to the clinical setting, it usually has to be tested in animal models. Can you tell us a little bit more about the animal model you used in the paper? In our animal studies, the specificity is quite good. So the true negative rate is like 100%. The staging, it goes down, I think in the worst case for stage two fibrosis, it was down at like 80% sensitivity. Specificity is still pretty high. The good thing about this kind of test is you want very high specificity. You don't want to be sending somebody for a, a liver biopsy when they didn't need one. You don't want false positives. The test here, though, was, you know, we needed, we needed truth, so we couldn't actually do this with patients, so we, but we could do it with mice, where when they're f- fed a special diet, you can actually induce fatty liver disease, and you can actually get it to transform to NASH, you know, the, uh, the fibrotic reaction. And, and, of course, we could sacrifice these animals and uh, do pathology, and stage them for the type of disease. And so we could use that truth, ground truth, compared with our measurement to be able to develop the algorithm that would be used to test unknowns. Were you able to try this at all in human samples? What we did in the paper is we actually worked with some people that were interested in transplant. Uh, So we worked on human livers So the idea there was, and we didn't do enough validation here, but we showed that it seemed to be working there, is that you could screen livers for degree of fibrotic fibrosis. So if you get a liver liver that's going to transplant, you can't kind of screw around. It has to, you don't have much time. And so the thinking was, well, this would be interesting. We could do this measurement very quickly and assess the degree of fibrosis that was present in the liver. There aren't really good biomarkers. Now you say, well, you could take a, a slice of that and do pathology on it. Yeah, but it takes time. And this would be a quick one. So I wouldn't say that was completely validated in this paper, but There's a use case for it right now. My following question would be with your extensive experience with uh, with taking uh, technologies from the, the bench to the bedside over decades, what what limitation you envision for this diagnostic device? You know, I'm a big believer in diagnostics. I started a diagnostic company. We were saving people's lives every day with that test because it's for sepsis, telling which physicians which which bug these patients have. But I have to tell you that the diagnostics is the toughest medical product to develop. And it has, it doesn't have to do with the science. It doesn't have to do with the technology. It has everything to do in reimbursement. There's a mindset that we have in this country is that diagnostics should be cheap. And the truth is many diagnostics take 
just as much money to develop as a drug. I've had many people tell me this, is you have to be every bit as innovative on reimbursement as you are on the technology to be successful on medical diagnostics. If you're going to reduce healthcare costs, part of that, an important part of that, is bringing the right patient to the right medical service. And how do you do that without diagnostics? How do you confidently make that connection? How, how do you not overtreat, not undertreat without powerful medical diagnostics? Getting reimbursed for it is really tough. Do you think you envision this technology replacing biopsies in the future, or will it be just a screen for whether a patient needs a biopsy or not? In other words, do you imagine this product would actually be able to be applied in the clinic? In the product development world, we would say, where is it positioned? It would be positioned prior to anything as invasive as a liver biopsy. You can envision anybody that was even thought to have you know, advanced stages of fatty liver disease, which is becoming NASH, or earlier than NASH. That would, you know, these this this paper showed that it's detecting fibrosis earlier than sort of clinical evidence, other types of clinical evidence. So if you if it only worked at, at very advanced, you'd see patients' skin starting to turn yellow and stuff like that. Not that far, but this is pre-clinical symptoms, you'd be able to identify these patients before they advance to, you know, stage two NASH. And that's important because while you can't reverse it, you can work to change the progression of the disease by changing the patient's habits. So you would have identified those people that really need concentrated effort, clinical effort, out of the many people that are just overweight that are not going to, for whatever reason, don't progress to NASH. And so that's the key is where do you put your clinical effort in clinical care? And it's targeting those people that are at risk. Okay. That's where, how this device would be positioned. You would be screening all these people that were overweight and finding those admittedly small number that, you know, 10, 20% that really need extra care to prevent them from progressing to liver failure. That's the hybridization that happens, right? You have to be optimizing across medical practice and the technology that you hope to ultimately develop. Sometimes it's, it's not what you thought it would be. The first indication may not be what you thought it would be simply because of that. Thank you so much, Dr. Simo. We really appreciate you coming and talking to us about the intricacies of medical product development, how this non-invasive technology could really help with liver disease diagnosis. You can look at our journey in the published literature mm -hmm. of this technology, and you'll see it happens over a long period of time. I emphasize that, that every one of these technologies that are new in the clinic have been progressed in a similar fashion. They've been yeah. around for a while and people have really tried to find their way into the clinic different ways. That's a very common phenomenon.
I am certainly inspired by how one small idea 14 years ago became the basis for a really important medical device that will hopefully change the way we think about diagnosis. And it sounds like Dr. Seema gives a lot of credit to his students that he's worked with over the years. So if you're a student out there listening, something you're working on in the lab right now may seem small, but could turn out to be just a small piece to a very large 14-year puzzle. This is absolutely right, Shin. I would like to thank all our listeners and remind you that you can support Science Rehashed by becoming our Patreon on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash join slash science rehash to join. And join us for our next episode where we will be talking to Dr. Anna Ivanova about another puzzle, the brain circuits most involved in understanding computer code. Now that's something I like to know. See you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Lauren Granada, edited by Finn Dowling, and mixed by Jared Warsoff. The cover art for this episode is created by our creative director, Emma Brand. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. We would also like to thank our marketing director, Carla Diavanzo, our production directors, Madura Lolikar and Sophia Nastri, our producer, Chira Maffei, and our website developer, Rebecca Soilson. We would also like to thank Dr. Rudy Tanzi for providing us with the music for our intro. And please don't forget to subscribe to Science Rehash through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can help our podcast grow by telling a friend and spreading the word. Also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or visit our website at sciencerehash.com. See you next time.